0: Just as you have sung that you want me, that nothing else will do, that is how I feel about you. I just want you. I just want you. I want to be in your presence as well. You mean more to me than anything you could do for me. You mean more to me than all of the money that you could ever put in an offering. You mean more to me than any acts of service that you could perform for me. You mean more to me than your attendance in a church service. You, you mean more to me. You see, I died for you. Not for your offerings. Not for your church attendance. Not for your acts of service. I died for you. All of these other things are supposed to be the fruit of your relationship with me. But I want you. Nothing else matters. I want you. Learn to fellowship with me out of relationship and love. I just want you. I just want to spend time with you. In those times of fellowship, you will understand me More and more. In those times of fellowship, you will understand my love for you more and more. In those times of fellowship, you will understand how to trust me more and more. You see, the times of fellowship that we have together are more critical than you realize. Again, I want you to know, I just want you. So come to me and spend time with me just like I am your best friend. For that is what I want to be to you. Trust me, greater days lie ahead if you will just spend time with me, says the Lord. Bless your name, Jesus. Thank you. Today is the tenth part in this series on God's judgment. And I hope that this series sinks into me. And to you, that we take this seriously. To be honest, uh, like everything else is a lie, but to be honest right now, <laughs> no, really, uh, if we are open and honest, we will admit that it can be a challenge at times to trust a God we cannot see. You know, our, our minds tell us You know, just it's just our makeup, the way we are, as far as you know, living in this natural world. It just seems like it would be easier if we could see Him. You know, I mean, just if you if you could just just show up one time, or every Sunday. (laughs) I mean, just physically be here. It would be easier for us to trust You. Well, then, we would be trusting Him based on our physical senses. And that's not the way it works. We walk by faith, not by physical senses. So therefore, we absolutely must take Him at His word. You know, uh, even this morning I was thinking about how, you know, a lot of people talk about, God, I just want a sign. Just just some kind of a sign. Just give me a sign that you're doing something, that you're working, or whatever it would be. And I'm thinking about that. And the thought kind of flashed through my mind to do that. You know, God, give me a sign you know, to show me that you're working and whatever. Because let's be honest. You know, I've been here now since, as a pastor, since uh, February 21st, 1999. I thought by now there'd be a whole lot more of y'all. <laughs> and so God, you know... What's going on? You know, give me a sign. Well, I mean, I didn't ask that. But I was, again, that thought just shot right through. And the Lord began to speak to me about people asking for a sign. He said, you ask for a sign. He said, but my word is your sign. Because if you see it in his word, that's supposed to be the sign. And some people will say, well, yeah, but what about Abraham? You know, God told him, look at the stars and look at the grains of the sand. Well, yeah, that's true. God did that. But Abraham wasn't born again. And even though he believed God and God, um, you know, counted it unto him as righteousness, he wasn't born again. He did not have a spiritual nature that was compatible with God's. Well, see, we do. If we're born again, we do. And that is why His Word is supposed to be our sign. Otherwise, we're looking for something our senses can experience. And that's only temporary. You know, you see one sign, then after a while, you know, you start doubting again. But if you are focused on the Word, and the Word becomes your sign... Well, then you don't need something on the outside. I don't, you know, I've shared before, I don't need to see anybody get healed to believe that healing is for today. Because the sign is in My Word. It's right here in the Bible. Now, along with that, when God makes these statements in His Word about judgment in this lifetime prior to the final day that we stand before Him, it's kind of like we all understand, well, the day's coming. We're all going to stand before God that final day of judgment. We, we all pretty much accept that and we know it's coming. Sometimes we don't really live like it's coming. In other words, if we truly believed we were going to be standing before God and this is it. I mean, this is it. There is no more judgment beyond this moment right now. I think maybe we might do things a little bit differently in this life as far as the choices that we make. But then he also talks about, you know, the the judgment in this life. And that's where a lot of people get messed up, Christians, all right, because this series is focused on Christians. Too many people, Christians, they kind of have the idea that, well... They, they really don't believe there will be genuine judgment in this life. They kind of brush it off in spite of what God says in His Word. And then you actually have some preachers that teach against it. That they pretty much are telling you, well, there's no judgment in this, in this life, in this world. We um, have as a foundation scripture, 1 Peter chapter 4. In fact, you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Because we'll be looking in there for a bit here this morning. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, it talks about judgment begins in the house of God. That's us. Judgment begins in the body of Christ. Judgment begins among the believers. You, know, you say it a number of different ways. It begins there. And to kind of paraphrase... It's almost like God is saying, you know, in that passage, judgment begins with my house, with my children, with the body of Christ, the church, because if I don't judge them, how can I justify judging the world? Because in essence, what I'm saying is, well, you know what, if you profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there are no more standards. There are no more requirements. There, there's nothing you need to be concerned about. You can kind of do whatever you want. Well, we know that's not true. So therefore, God says, judgment begins in my house. Because we have, as believers, His life and nature in us. We have that holiness in us. Therefore, we have the ability to live as Jesus in this world. Too many Christians don't want to believe that. You know, I've heard it said, well, it, it's inevitable. You're going to sin. Sooner or later, you're going to sin. Well, you keep preaching that and guess what? People are going to sin. Because you're training them to be a sinner. You're not telling them what to do. You're just telling them, well, you're going to. to so just get it settled. You're going to. That's just the way it is. But that's not what we see in the Word of God. And the reason that a lot of preachers teach that is because they have not yet figured out who they really are in Christ and what that born-again life is all about. Because the born-again life in us is the power to say no to every form of temptation, no matter what it is. That born-again life in us is the power to say no To everything God has identified in scripture as being a sin. So therefore, we don't have an excuse. So, you know, you've got a lot of pastors, they're gonna answer to God for this. You know, He's gonna look at them and why did you tell my church they were going to sin? Why did you tell them they were just sinners? Why did you tell them they still have an old sin nature? Why did you tell them all this? And see, what's really sad is that every single pastor on earth who teaches things like that it is no is in no position to be pastoring a church. I don't care how nice they are, I don't care how much they help people, how much they love people. When you stand up, hey the apostle Paul, think about what he did. When he was out persecuting the church, he was in no position to be a leader in the church, not the church that God through Jesus established. But yet he was sold out, was he not? His zeal for God. His zeal for the law. And yet he wasn't in any way prepared to be a leader in the church. So you've got preachers out there teaching these things. They shouldn't be behind the pulpit. They shouldn't They shouldn't be changing diapers in the nursery. They should be sitting in a pew or a chair receiving the word that will bring about transformation in their belief system if they receive it. Now, in, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 2, if you look in verse 1, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. Stop right there. He says false teachers among You. Who are the you he's talking about? Well, that's answered in uh, chapter 1, here in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, in chapter 2, verse 1, There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. The you, that's the body of Christ. Christians. Alright? It's extremely important we get that settled right here and now. Because what we read beyond this is a warning to the body of Christ. Why in the world would you warn people that have been dead for centuries? You follow me? Now, He says there were false prophets among the people. What people? There were, past tense, false prophets among the people. What people? Those would be the people in the Old Testament, the Jews who had the law. Who were the false prophets? Well, anybody who stood up, whether it was a a priest or a prophet, anybody who stood up, and declared something to the people that did not line up with what God had said. Now, it's important to remember that back um, in the Old Testament, when you would read these stories about, you know, and king so-and-so did more wickedly than, you know, the king before him and all this, and you had um, uh, priests that were corrupt. You know, Eli, hafna uh, um Hophni and Phinehas. I mean, you had others. Throughout the Old Testament, you would see this. But what you have to remember is, they would still stand up and say things like, well, we have to honor the Sabbath. Well, we have Jehovah. We are the Jews. We are the chosen ones of God. You know, we cannot eat this. And we, we have to observe this festival. What I'm getting at is, they still talked about the law. They still talked about Father Moses, Father Abraham, and all this other. However, they brought in, well, the term he uses here, damnable heresies, they brought in truth that, well, it was their truth, not God's truth. They brought in their truth that they wanted the people to believe. And so God, back then, eventually, what did He do? He gave them plenty of time to fix the issue. And when they didn't, judgment, right? You've read the Old Testament, you know. Well, here he's saying, now I'm kind of paraphrasing here in Second Peter. It's almost like he's saying, let me remind you of what happened back then and what the result was. Because there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. Now that phrase, privily shall bring in, it's talking about they'll bring something in in such a way that it can seem very, very subtle. For example, you have a pastor of a church, popular, great personality. You know, that kind of personality people are just drawn to. Well, I know that I do not have that kind of personality. <laughs> what... Well, I'll I'll take that laughter as an amen. <laughs> now, I know I'm not that kind of a person, you know, the the that walks into a room and like immediately everybody wants to be around that person. Well, it, it's kind of the opposite. When I walk on the room, people kind of like begin to, you know, migrate away from me. <laughs> They're over here with somebody else. Okay, I get it. The pastor who stands up, got to smile all the time and you know, I mean, don't don't think I'm pointing out or identifying one specific pastor. I'm just talking about those kind of people. They stand up, and because of their style of delivery and the way that everybody loves them, so on and so forth, they can begin to teach things that aren't right. And then people begin to accept it. It's, it's very subtle. And so he says, um, False teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Now remember, he's talking to believers. So when he says, and many shall follow their pernicious ways, he's saying, many in the body of Christ shall begin to follow them. Well, Timothy when Paul wrote to Timothy, it talks about you know the itching ears, and heaping unto themselves teachers that will teach them what they want to hear. And verse 3, And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, now, stop right there for a moment. Let's back up. In verse 1, you see this phrase, damnable heresies. Right? Just that word, damnable. And then, and at the end of verse 1, you see the word, destruction. Then, in verse 2, you see the phrase, pernicious ways. Then, in verse 3, toward the end of that verse, you see the word, damnation. Now, the word damnable, destruction, pernicious ways, and damnation all come from the same root Greek word. All of them. And that Greek that Greek word is apoleia. Maybe a mispronunciation, but it's apoleia. Now, as it pertains to this passage, this word, what it means is the second death, which is eternal exclusion... From Christ's kingdom. The second death. Now, if you remember over in Jude, it talks about people who um, are, well, the false prophets and so forth, and they're leading people astray. It talks about them being twice dead. Well, you can't be twice dead if you weren't dead, then made alive, then died again. And some people don't believe that can happen. Well, How else are you going to explain twice dead? I mean, what is in the Word? Now, here what we see is, This word, Apollaea, and it means the second death, which is eternal exclusion from Christ's kingdom. That means, remember now, this is written to believers. And so he's telling believers, if you get caught up in this, you need to understand. You are headed in the direction of Apollaea, the second death, which is eternal exclusion from Christ's kingdom. Now, if we look again in verse uh, 1, he says... You know, there were false prophets among the people. Even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily or subtly shall bring in or introduce to you heresies that will lead you to the second death and that is eternal exclusion from Christ's kingdom. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. Even denying the Lord that bought them Now, what does that mean, denying the Lord? A simple way to explain it would be no longer standing in full agreement with what the Lord has said. So therefore, I can go through the Word and if I find something that contradicts what they're teaching, then what that means is they are denying the Lord. They are no longer standing in agreement with what He has said. Even denying the Lord that Bought them. Okay, that right there should seal it for you, whether or not uh, he's talking to Christians. How did the Lord buy you his blood? He shed his blood and purchased our redemption, as we say. And so he's saying, look, <laughs> they're denying, they're no longer standing in agreement with the Lord, even though he bought them with his own blood. And bring upon themselves Swift destruction. And again, that word destruction is, you know, the second death. Exclusion from the kingdom of God. Now, where it says swift destruction, it's an interesting word because in our minds, we envision that as, you know, the person stands up, delivers a damnable heresy, and boom, the lightning bolt hits and down he goes. little pile of ashes. That's all that's left. Well, no, that's not what that means. What that means is, um, and again, it's, it's one of those Greek words that is more picture oriented than word defined oriented. But what it's talking about is, it doesn't take God long to figure out what they're doing. In other words, God up, and up in heaven talking to the angels is like, Fellas, you hear what they're saying. Is that right? I mean, help me out, Holy Spirit. What? Is this true? Did you tell him to say that? No. No. <laughs> God knows immediately what is going on, and it begins to seal their destruction. Now, guys, there's so much in this. I mean, there's so many words in all of what we're going to be reading here this morning. I'm just not going to get into all the different Greek words and etc., but I'll make reference to some. But then here, he says, and many, many in the body of Christ, many believers shall follow their... Damnable heresy ways that lead them to the second death, which is eternal exclusion from Christ's kingdom. Many shall follow them. So then here we have a group of, of people. We have Christians that are hearing this teaching and then they begin to follow after them. You understand what I'm getting at? At first, they're listening to the Apostle Paul. But now they begin listening to some, the Hymenius, the Alexander, you know, the kind of guys that, that uh, Paul warned about. And he says, And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of, or shall be, there should be blasphemy. The way of truth. Okay, what is the way of truth? Well, very simply put, the way of truth is right there in your hands, right now, the Bible. But when he says the way of truth evil spoken of, What this means is, okay. Let me simplify it, folks. We know what's in the Bible. We read the Bible, but I want you to understand that once you're washed in the blood of Jesus, from this point on, there's no need for you to repent. Now, even though there are passages in there that tell you to repent, there are those who have stood up and said, "There's nothing in the New Testament that tells a Christian to repent," even though it's in there. It's in there. We've gone over this before. We've read this before. And so when he says, uh, "By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of," if I tell you that the truth in Scripture is no longer applicable, even though I won't say it like that, I will say it like this: Well, God knows who you are. He knows how you are. Um, you know, He you are how He made you, and He respects the love you have for others. You, you follow what I'm saying here? Okay. At that point, the way of truth is now evil spoken of. And he says, "And through covetousness shall they, with feigned words, make merchandise of you." Now, that's kind of wordy. The covetousness. Don't think in terms of uh, of it only being about I want your money. No, the covetousness. Part of what this, the image this is presenting, is. I want your attention. I want you to listen to me. I want you to be my follower. In other words, there's a bit of ego and pride involved in this. Uh, see you can be you can have a lot of pride and ego, but never come across as prideful and egotistic. You understand that? Well, and he says with feigned words, make merchandise of you. Now, this feigned words. Um it comes from a word plas- the word fain comes from a word plastos, which is kind of like the grandfather of the word plastic. Well plast, have you ever had, um, those plastic spoons and forks that look like they're metal, but they're not? <laughs> I remember the first time, you know, I, I encountered that and I thought, oh wow, this place is really neat. I mean, I, they're having a picnic with all, you know, real silverware and I pick it up and I'm like, this is plastic. This isn't real. What's the deal? Okay, feigned silverware. (laughs) All right? Feigned words. In other words, it looks real. It sounds real. And, And what's interesting is the way this is presented, the way we would describe it today, is they'll even use Greek or Hebrew words to try and prove their point. Well, you can do that. Look, you can take Greek and Hebrew words and make all kinds of whatever. You can present things that will sound real. And look, it's impressive when somebody stands up and says, well, now the Greek and the Greek language and the Sumo-woma tense of the blah, blah, etc. So forth. You think, wow, that guy knows what he's talking about. Well... You know, it's like the one fellow said. He got a mouth full of words, but a head full of empty. No, he really doesn't know what he's talking about. So, <laughs> and he says, <laughs> "Whose judgment of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation, their Apollya, slumbereth not." It isn't that they're going to die tomorrow and go to hell. What this is telling us is. God is not waiting 50 years to judge what they're doing. He's judging it as they stand up and they speak it. As they live it. As they act it out. Whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Meaning, they're they're held accountable now. Right now. I understand the concept of grace and how that through grace, God gives us the opportunity, his you know, mercy and so forth. He gives us the opportunity to repent, but that doesn't mean we aren't guilty. It means we're guilty and we need to repent. He's giving us a chance. Well, he continues here and uh, just jump down to verse six. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that should live ungodly. Now, stop right there. He's telling you, if you live ungodly, you're facing destruction. You are facing. Well, as he says right here, you know, you with an overthrow. You're facing being overthrown now in this life. See, here's the thing. Yeah. People go to Las Vegas. Or they go to these casinos. And Lord have mercy, I have no idea why. Because the odds are always stacked in the casino's favor. And it's like some people say, well, yeah, but that's my form of entertainment. Really? Losing money is your form of bitter. Why not just go to the bathroom, throw it in the toilet, and flush it down? Be done with it. Save yourself some gas money. It's crazy. Every now and then somebody wins. It's like, I won a thousand dollars. I won a thousand dollars. Well, how much did you bet before you? Three thousand. But I won a thousand (laughs) dollars. So you lost two thousand on the deal. Yeah, but I won a thousand dollars. (laughs) Well, he says, look, The overthrow. You know, you don't know when it's going to happen. When you roll that dice, you don't know. When you pull the, you know, one-armed bandit, you don't know. When those cards are being dealt, you don't know. You are gambling your money. Well, in this, you're gambling your tomorrow. Because you don't know. And he says, making them... You know, an example to those that uh, afterwards should live ungodly. But then now look at this. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now let's take a look at this. In verse 7, where it says, delivered just Lot, that word just, Another way to say that would be righteous Lot. Now, why would we call him righteous? Because he was not participating in the deeds of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we understand more about why he was called righteous as we continue to read. Delivered just Lot. Now, see that word vexed? That word vexed, it comes from the Greek word katapaneo. And it means labored, pain, worn down, wearied, oppressed, afflicted. Well, what was just Lot labored, pained, worn down, wearied, oppressed and afflicted by with the filthy conversation of the wicked? That word filthy, that is an excellent word that the translators use. But that word filthy, it comes from a Greek word, "aselgeia" or something like that, licentious, brutal, debauchery. Sexual excess, absence of restraint, arrogance in the face of correction, wantonness, lustful, perversion in general. Are you getting the idea? That's what the word filthy means. The word conversation, that basically means behavior or lifestyle. That's critical. Not just behavior, but behavior and lifestyle. Okay? And then, the word wicked, that word wicked... It comes from a compound uh, Greek word, which is athesmos. A meaning without, and theismos meaning a law. In other words, no conscience beyond the desire for self-fulfillment. I don't care what you want. This is what I want. This is what I want to do. Well, what is it that you want to do? Well, I want to be licentious, brutal. I want debauchery. I want sexual excess. I have absence of restraint. I'm arrogance in the face of correction. I have, I'm wanting this lustful perversion. And that's what I want. Well, obviously that's what we see going on back there in Sodom. And then in verse eight, he says, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, in seeing and hearing. In other words, we're not talking about things going on behind closed doors. Although, yeah, that's part of it. This is talking about stuff that was what we might call in your face. Almost like people standing up, like the people being described here, standing up and saying, we're coming after your children. That's a good way to illustrate it. Illustrate it along with any actions taking place out in the open. Do you understand? Well, maybe you don't, but there are such actions taking place out in the open in places like San Francisco. I'm seriously, this is disgusting. Anyway, what's happened here, what this is talking about is that Lot witnessed this. Now look here. From day to day. He saw this. He not only saw it, he heard it. How many of you have been out in public and you hear people using F-bombs all the time? You know, I mean, their mouth is a cesspool of vulgarities. Isn't that offensive? Yeah, it is. And then some people say, well, I don't know what the big deal is. You know, it's just a word. <laughs> well, have you ever gotten into the Bible to find out what God has to say about words? And how powerful they are. He warns, with your words, you can lead people astray. And I'm telling you right now, there are a lot of Christians, they've been hanging around the wrong group, and their vocabulary begins to conform to the vocabulary they're hearing. So yeah, it's more than just a word. There's meaning behind it. So he's hearing and he's seeing these things go on day after day after day. And his soul was vexed. His soul was troubled by it. Well, if you look here in verse 9, it says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government or despise leadership. <laughs> are we, this stuff is coming to life before our very eyes in this country like never before. Despise government, despise authority. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Now that word "dignities" is interesting because it's uh, the Greek word "doxa," which means glory. They're not afraid to speak evil of glory. What's that? What's that mean? It's talking about they don't. They'll be critical of the Bible, of Scripture, of God, of Jesus, of you Christians. All you do is hate. All you do is want to tell us that we're bad people. Blah blah blah. Just Like a video that says, if you're concerned, you accuse us of being this, that, and the other, and you know what? You're right. That's what we are. (laughs) And so he says, they're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. He says, verse 11, whereas angels which are greater in power and might bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. What does that mean, railing accusation? It isn't that the angels don't recognize what's being done is wrong. But what this is saying is that the angels, even though... Now look here, he tells you right here they're greater in power and might. They do not declare a finality of judgment against them. Even though they could take you out. In the Old Testament it talks about an angel coming down and and just killing thousands of the enemy in one night. So it isn't that the angels are incapable. They know their place. And if God doesn't tell them, uh, go wipe those people out, they don't. But if he says, do it, guess what? They do it. And if God gives an angel instruction to take you out because of your sin, guess what? You're going to die. And if that angel appears before you and you say, what are you here for? He says, I'm here to kill you. And you say, well, now, just wait a minute. Hold on. Why are you here to kill me? Because God told me to come and kill you. Well, why did he tell you to come and kill me? And the angel will pause for a moment and he'll say, here's what God is telling me. It's because of your licentiousness. Your, <laughs> I mean, He goes through the list. So I'm here to kill you. Well, now, hold on here, angel. Let, let's work something out. Angel says, there's nothing to work out. You die. And then he takes out his sword and, or whatever he does. I mean, however, angels do these things. He does it. And didn't you know what he does? He goes back to God, he says they're gone. God says, thank you. Now, I don't know that God says thank you. You But you follow what I'm saying. In other words, he's saying the angels do not step in and take the place of God even though they realize what you're doing is absolute rebellion to the supreme holy authority of this universe. He says, but these, as natural brute beasts... Made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things they understand now not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. that riot in the daytime don't think of it as exclusively um, you know what we've seen these riots in the cities here, but that riot in the daytime, what it's talking about is Their sin, what they do, it is no longer a private matter. They are, think of it like this, they are rioting against Almighty God and they don't care who sees it. Have you ever seen some of the t-shirts that people wear and the the filthiness of their t-shirts? That is a way to describe what this verse is talking about. Okay, now, let's think about this. He's using Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, as examples of what's happening, what's going to happen, what you're facing as a believer if you start living this way. Now, turn over to Genesis chapter 19. Let's take a look at this. Kind of compare some of this with what he has just said here in um 2nd Peter Now in Genesis chapter 19 beginning in, in verse 14 what happened you know these two angels show up and they said okay look you know the city's going to be destroyed um we need to get you guys out of here well it says in uh, Genesis 19 verse 14 and Lot went out and spake unto his sons in law which married his daughters and said up get you out of this place for the lord will destroy this city but he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons in law <laughs> Guys, if if God through Peter was using this whole scenario as a prophetic warning to the church today, you need to understand right now, it does not matter what you say, what you preach, what scripture you use, there are going to be those who look at you and see you as one that mocks. Do you understand this? They're going to think it's a joke. They're going to laugh in your face. Well, verse 15, now look. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, in other words, he's taken too long to pack his bags. All right. While he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. Why did they do that? Because righteous Lot. Just Lot. You see this? He wasn't a part of all this stuff that was going on. Now notice it says in verse 15, And when the morning arose, or when day broke, you understand what I'm saying? When day broke, what happened? The angels said, you got to go. And the angels grabbed them by the hand on that day and took them out of the city. Well, listen again to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. See this? So when God was talking about this whole thing with Lot, back over there in 2 Peter... And then, he goes into verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly. Well, he's still talking about what happened back there in Sodom and Gomorrah, how that on the day of judgment, God delivered Lot, his wife, and his two daughters. And it says here in verse 17, And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, or brought them out of the city, that he, this, what the angel said, "...Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed." And Lot said unto them, Oh, not so, my Lord. Behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me, and I die. Behold now, this city is near to flee, to, flee unto, and it is a little one." Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for the which thou hast spoken. God was going to destroy another city. Lot was interceding. And God said, Okay, then I won't destroy that city you want to go to. Verse 22, Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou be come thither. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. Why did God say, I can't do anything until you get out of the way? Because it all goes back to the covenant God established with Abraham. That covenant extended to Lot. And God is saying, okay, look, until you get out of the way, I can't do anything. Now, let me just interject briefly, all right? Very briefly. If this doesn't tell you something about the power of intercession... I don't know what does. Because, in essence, God was interceding on behalf of. Now, as you're going to see in a moment, intercession only goes so far. Because, look here. The sun was risen upon the earth, verse 23, when Lot entered into Zor. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities... And that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. See that? Now what, Verse 17. Look at this. They said it came to pass when they had brought them forth. Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee. Look not behind thee. Look. Now, Lot's wife looked back. The two daughters didn't, but we see their perversions later in this chapter. And Lot didn't look, by, look back. If, if they had, if Lot, the daughters had, they too would have become a pillar of salt. So, Lot's wife turned and looked back. But notice, we read over there in Second Peter, how that Lot's soul was vexed. Every day, he's living in this. And he was troubled. He was disturbed. He was burdened. It had an impact on his daughters. We know how that story went. He's concerned about his family. By the way, his daughters, well, you know the story, they're, they're hiding, they're in a cave and all this other stuff, and they decide to get daddy drunk because they had this crazy idea, well, there's no other man in the world that we could marry, in spite of the fact that Uncle Abraham has a bunch of servants. And so they decide to get daddy drunk, And the the older one one night and the younger one the next night to get daddy drunk. They have relations with him. They both end up pregnant. One gives birth to a baby boy named Moab. The other gives birth to a baby boy named Ammon. Now, here's what's interesting. Those two baby boys, they became the heads or the patriarchs of two people groups that were a constant problem to the people group fathered by Isaac. By Abraham. The Moabites. The Ammonites. Over and over in scripture. You know they were a pain. And they were birthed out of this perversion. Well. Lot's soul was vexed. But apparently. His wife's. Was not. Because you would think. She would be rejoicing. Finally, we are getting out of this this pit of perversions. Finally, God is doing something about this. Finally, we're out of here. We don't have to deal with this. Finally, we're gone. Finally, God is going to move and and just destroy all this junk that's going on. She had an instruction, don't look back. But she did. So apparently her soul wasn't quite as vexed in fact and I know that there's got to you know some some speculation here but it's possible that she actually helped to facilitate the behavior of the daughters what I mean is okay i don't know about your home but i do know this in some homes one parent is more of an enabler to sin than the other. I'm talking Christian homes now. Well, you got to let them grow up. Well, they have to learn. Well, they have to, you know, and there's this, this enabling that goes on. And so you have the strife from the world. It begins being brought into the, uh, the home. And you have the husband or the wife, you know, the mom or the dad, I mean, one of them. You know, no, we we can't be doing this, and and then it, the, I mean, it's on the strife and the conflict. It's going on, and then very often you'll have one parent tell the child, "Well, it's okay, yeah, if you want to go to that party, you can go," and then the other parent is saying, "Why would why would you say that? They don't need to be going to that party with those people. What they're doing? I mean, they got drugs and alcohol. Yes, well, yeah, but our children, you know, they're perfect little angels. They don't do anything like that." Till Sissy comes home and says she's pregnant and she doesn't know who the daddy is. I mean, this stuff goes on in the church. And so Lot's wife apparently wasn't that vexed because she rebelled against an instruction from God and turned and looked. And what happened? Well, remember what we read in in Second uh, Peter. How that God will bring about this judgment. Now listen, the just won't read the whole chapter Romans chapter 1 verse 32. Who without a who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the same but have pleasure in them that do them. Lot's wife had pleasure at least in part with what was going on there in Sodom and Gomorrah and it brought about her destruction. Even though she physically may not have been involved with it. God's trying to send a message here in 2nd Peter and he's saying even if you aren't a participant, if you are an enabler, if if your soul isn't vexed, then you can be held in judgment too. And there are Christians, here the other day, well, nope, don't want to say that one just yet. There are Christians who will defend the behavior of their children when their children get involved in the kind of things that brought about destruction in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, God loves them. Well, yeah, Jesus died for them. But He didn't die for that behavior. He died for them so they could be delivered from that behavior. So they could quit living that way. Now, I want to read something to you. This came from um, from Michael Brown. He uh, sent this out on August the 16th. Just couple of days ago. And in it, he's talking about, um, well, a disturbing trend that has been growing in recent years. A trend in which you can claim to have a relationship with Jesus and speak of your great love for God without that relationship making any tangible impact on your life. Back in 2013, in an article in Ministry Today. Ministry Today is supposed to be a Christian magazine. And in some aspects... It has good stuff, good articles relative to the Christian life. But I I wouldn't want that magazine in my home because it has too much compromise in it. Listen to this. Back in 2013 in an article in Ministry Today titled, The Tragic Fruit of a Compromised Gospel, I referenced a senior editor of one of the nation's leading Christian publications who spoke with regret about the, quote, Long-standing evangelical myth that there should be something different about the Christian. Wrote about a glamorous spokeswoman for a conservative Christian, for conservative Christian values who explained that I am a Christian and I am a model. Models pose for pictures including lingerie and swimwear photos. (laughs) Really? I think you and I both know what lingerie and swimwear photos look like. Um, a, a, uh, a well-known rapper who claimed a conversion to Christianity and stated, I love God, Jesus Christ is my Savior, and I'm still out there thugging. <laughs> he has been baptized, attends church regularly, and says, I still love the strip club, and I still smoke and drink. I'm faithful to my family, So I wanted to make an album where you could love God and be of God, but still get it popping in your life. Are we not talking to false prophets and the false teachers? They don't all stand behind a pulpit. Some of them are in the recording studios. Things are even worse today as a superficial or downright false message is proclaimed day and night online and then spread like a tsunami via social media. Good glory, if that is not true. I mean, there are a lot of Christians out there. You're just plain dumb stupid. Because you buy into stuff and you repeat it and you have no scripture to support it. It is a message of salvation without sacrifice and redemption without requirements. It is the logical response to a modern day gospel which says, Jesus died for your sins and took away all your guilt, so don't ever feel condemned. And don't let anyone ever judge you. You just be you. That's what it means to be saved. But this is nothing new. As long as grace has been preached, grace has been abused. That's why Paul wrote, Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means, or God forbid. That's Romans 6.15. That's also why Jude warned about ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And these words were written within the first century of this era at a time when some of the apostles were still alive. That's why it is no surprise that with so much gospel light being preached today, the message of grace is being abused all the more. In many circles today, it is more important for pastors to be hip than to be holy, while church growth seminars emphasize relevance rather than repentance. In many circles today, Sin is hardly addressed other than the latest woke topic of interest. You know all that woke stuff I mean, number one, it's dumber than dumb and stupider than stupid, and if you buy into it, you're being sucked in to what this what I'm warning about today from the Word of God, what I'm showing you. but here's the thing: if you want me to take you seriously, at least get your grammar right i'm woke. no, you're not. you are awakened do you Do you understand what I'm saying? That kind of stuff to me just proves how stupid you are. And you want me to buy into your doctrine? No. I am a little more educated than that. Not arrogantly so. Just I recognize stupidity for what it is. Brother Martin, you're being kind of hard. No, I'm not. I'm just telling you how it is. I awakened unto righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. So I guess that makes me woke. Glory to God. (laughs) Listen, in many circles today, sin is hardly addressed other than the latest woke topic of interest. And controversial issues, issues that are addressed repeatedly in the Bible, are not addressed at all. Instead, the sermons are carefully planned out to make you feel good about yourself, even if you are living in complete rebellion to God. This is the essence of the gospel of self-esteem. This part about Um, Sermons that are carefully planned out. You may not know this, but it goes on all over. All over is a figure of speech, you know, but it goes on in many different churches. The pastor will get with the audio video department and tell him about his sermon. And he'll say, "Okay, now, when I say such and such, that is your cue to flash such and such image up on the screen. And when we turn to the sum of sum of scripture over there in whatever, that is your cue to flash the next image up the there. They sit down and they plan this stuff out. How dorky! If I would rather have you focused on your Bible, I don't want to show you a bunch of happy face pictures up there to entertain you while the Word of God's being delivered. That's just nuts. But it goes on. He says, he continues here, and he says, No wonder we have such a crisis of holiness in the church today. For the record, in the Bible, holiness is a beautiful word, and God himself is holy, holy, holy. How could we not have a crisis when so much of today's preaching is calculated to make sinners feel comfortable rather than convicted? Shortly before he was beheaded by Nero, Paul wrote these solemn words to his spiritual son, Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We are in such a season again today, one in which Paul's counsel to Timothy, namely that he reprove, rebuke, and exhort is judged to be severely outdated and out of touch. Honestly, you can listen to one whole year of sermons from some popular preachers today without hearing a single word of reproof, rebuke, or exhortation other than the exhortation not to feel bad or sad since God wants to make you glad, glad, glad. Am I exaggerating? No, you're not. Of course, some of this superficial preaching is a fleshly reaction to gospel angry, by which I refer to mean-spirited, self-righteous, condemnatory preaching, which robs people of hope and drags them down in discouragement and despair. That is as wrong as gospel light. What we need instead is a right preaching of the gospel, one in which we realize how guilty we are because of our sins, how much we deserve divine judgment, and how gloriously Jesus paid for our sins, liberating us to live for God. What we need is a right preaching of grace. A preaching that not only tells us about the depth of God's love as expressed through the cross, but also tells us that His love calls us out of rebellion, out of disobedience, out of self-will. What we need is a right preaching of Jesus. One in which we joyfully leave everything to follow Him once we learn who He really is. What a Savior. Put another way, the gospel of grace has requirements and to be saved means to serve Jesus as Lord. Anything less than this is not the gospel. Amen. Look in look in Hebrews chapter ten, real quickly. The pi, that, the title of that article is Pied Piper Preachers and the Gospel of No Responsibility. Well, that goes right along with what we read in Second Peter. About the people following them and their pernicious ways? Well, in Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 26. Now this is written to Christians. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. How much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace." For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. See that? Now turn over. We're going to close with this passage. Ezekiel chapter 18. See, once again, you have a lot of people. They just don't buy into this. But I don't know how you could ignore what God has put in his word. You know, you cannot play these games. I don't know how many times that you can watch porn on your computer until finally you've crossed the line. I don't know. I don't know how many times you can do this or do that. But I know this. False preaching and teaching has really led too many Christians into a comfort zone that's nothing more than a room with the lights turned out. And they do not realize how dangerous what they're doing really is to their eternity. And what makes it even more complicated is how many under-21s don't think this applies to them. Well, we've already covered that in this series. How that, yeah, you know, God doesn't look at you and say, "Oh yeah, well, you're only 16, you're only 14. Now I know you you're born again and, and uh, yeah well, me filled with the Holy Spirit, maybe even. yeah, I get it, um, but you know you're doing this stuff over here that I said don't do in my word, but you're only 14, so yeah I'm going to let it pass. <laughs> How dumb? I mean, you really don't think it matters? See, if you're smart enough to write your name, (laughs) you're probably at a point in life to where you're more accountable than you realize. If you know how to solve the simplest of mathematical equations, then you're probably at a point to where you're more accountable than you realize. That's where parents mess up. They sometimes, okay, here it is. We, in the in the body of Christ, we buy into this, well, they're 18, now they're adults. And they can make their own decisions. And let's see here. Where is that? Second stupid, chapter 7, verse 3. Where's that? No, that is something that's been imposed upon the body of Christ by society and you cannot support it with Scripture. You you flat out can't. This is why a lot of parents let the 18 and above year olds live under their roof and do whatever they stink and want because, well, you know, they're adults now. Really? And we get that from where in Scripture? Where do you find that? Now, Parents need to grow up too. But consider what we just read there in Hebrews. About the if we sin willfully, okay, your your goose is cooked, as, as they say. But now listen to what God has... Now this is prophetic. And I'm going to read it somewhat from God's prophetic nature in this passage. In verse 21... But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, and and he shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. Remember what God said? Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more? He said, They shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Saith the Lord God and not that he should return from his ways and live? But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? Now God's talking here about, not that you had a bad day at work and so you did something wrong. No, He's talking about you're following the pernicious ways. You're doing more and more of this stuff as a type of lifestyle and behavior. He says, All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. Yet ye say, The way of the Lord is not equal. Now think about this. What do we hear today from Christians? You're condemning me. You're trying to make me feel bad about myself. Man, I'm just telling you the Word of God. This is what God has said. You know, why are you doing this? Why are you twisting the Word? That's because you want to live in your pernicious ways. He says, You say the way of the Lord is not equal. Hear now, O house of Israel, hear now, O body of Christ, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and dieth in them for his iniquity that he hath done, shall he die? Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed, he surely shall, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet, Says So many in my church, the way of the Lord is not equal. O church, are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? Therefore I will judge you, O body of Christ, every one according to his ways, saith the Lord. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin." cast away from you all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O church of God? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live thee. Turn yourselves and live ye. See this? You think He was only talking to the people back then? No. God is saying your soul needs to be vexed if you're doing this stuff. But not only that, hear me out. Those of us who are not doing these things, those of us who do not approve of those things, those of us who, you know, the parents or whatever, we do not let those things go on under our roof. It's If you're going to live like that, then you're going to do it someplace else. You're not living that way under this roof. And if you end up homeless, living by a trash dumpster, that's on you, it's not on me. Because the Word of God says we cannot have this compromise. I am not going to be Lot's wife and look back at the disaster. I'm not going to do it. If we do not have that kind of stuff going on in our lives... Our soul needs to be vexed because it is going on. And we need to be a place of intercession on behalf of those who are doing these things. Really, in the body of Christ and the lost, they need Jesus. And those in the body of Christ, man, they they need, like God says here, they need to turn from their wickedness. If you've got friends or family members, especially like your family members, they're involved in some of this stuff, just keep calling their names out to God. One of the things that I do when I'm praying, and I name certain people by name almost every day. I name them by name before God. And part of my confession over them is that they have turned their backs on the world. Whatever that means to those individuals, they've turned, for some of them, yeah, they're living a Sodom and Gomorrah lifestyle. But I, my declaration over them is that they've turned their backs on the world that's part of my confession. And I also include God send angels. Angels, you know, follow the orders given to you by Almighty God. And, and whatever He says to do, you do. Create the atmospheres. You know, if you have to manifest in front of them and scare them, do it. Because, guys, we cannot numb our souls to what's going on and act like it doesn't happen. Act like it isn't going on. And we also need to understand, just like with uh, Ananias and Sapphira, there are some people between now and the time the Lord comes back, there are some Christians, they're probably going to die. Just like when Paul was talking to the church at Corinth and he says, you know, turn that fellow over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so his soul will be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, I know this sounds crazy, but it's better for some Christians to die now than to keep living in a way that is going to separate them from God for all eternity. See, the problem is, we don't know how close they are to that. We simply do not know. So I'm not saying you don't pray for them anymore. What I'm saying is this. Okay, put it like, let me say it this way. One way or the other, bless God, I want to see Him in heaven. I want to see Him in heaven. And if I have to shed tears now in this life, at least I will be rejoicing with them for all eternity before the throne of God. Our soul must be vexed because of this stuff. And we have to take a holy, righteous stand in our life Toward all of these things. We cannot compromise. We walk in love. We speak in love. We contradict behaviors in love. But we cannot compromise. We have to be the standard of Christ-like living to the world. Praise the Lord. And thank God we can. The power of His love, grace, mercy... Will enable us to do this. Praise the Lord.